0: If everyone can please take your seats. we're about to get started here with our second session. I have to say it was extremely encouraging and humbling to interact with some of you during the break. I always love coming to churches where I know the word of God is central because I know the people are accustomed to getting the meat of God's word and they're hungry for it and they respond to it in a way that is healthy and right. And and yet, at times, if you're anything like me, you can kind of slide into the rut and the routine of what we're accustomed to. And sometimes in that sort of a kind of atmosphere, we, we, we don't approach the word in the way that we really should when it's spoken and when it's heard. And when we look at Scripture, we see that there are three main ways that we're to approach God's word whenever it's, it's heard or taught or read, we're to receive it, we're to research it, and we're to respond to it in the affirmative. The Bereans did that, Acts 17, 11. Those who were in Berea were more noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica because they not only received the word with great eagerness, but they also examined or researched the scriptures to see if these things were so. James 1, tells, tells us to not be merely hearers of the word, but doers. Right? Uh, Jesus talked about building your house on the sand versus the rock, right? If you're not doing his word. And so we're to receive, research, and respond to his word in the affirmative. And when we do that, regardless of who we are or where we're at, it will truly transform our lives. If you do that and you're an unbeliever, it will reveal to you the truth that will require a response of either reception or rejection concerning the person of Christ. If you've strayed from the Lord, it will cause you to realize your folly, repent, recommit, and be restored. If you're going through doubts or trials, it will reassure you of your salvation, reaffirm God's love for you, and remind you to rejoice in tribulation. If you're going through a slump or dry spell, it will revive, renew, rejuvenate, and reinvigorate you. And if you're plain old walking in the spirit, it'll spark a refreshment and rejoicing because it is his radical, remarkable, reliable, reasonable, readable, revolutionary revelation, and it will not return to him void. (laughs) Amen? So I hope you continue to receive it, research it, and respond to it in the affirmative. Some of you may have heard me share before, or if you've followed our ministry for any amount of time, maybe you've read about it or have come across it somewhere, but I had a very crazy past before I came to Christ. Believe it or not, I was a gang member. I was a member of the Crips, kicked out of two high schools, attempted to commit suicide in front of my family. At that same time, I was a rap artist back then, believe it or not. Uh, Pastor Carrie was my backup dancer. (laughs) Yeah. Lois was our beatboxer. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever be invited back to this pulpit again. (laughs) But when the Lord got a hold of me and revolutionized and transformed my life, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is one of the sweetest things about the faith was when it came to friendships, You know, as an unbeliever and living the gang life, you knew that your supposed friends would stab you in the back if they had the opportunity in a heartbeat. That if they could steal your girlfriend or steal your wallet or steal your reputation or whatever it is, they'll do it. And when I became a Christian and I entered into the fellowship of the people of God, and I began to experience the sweetness of having camaraderie with those who were indwelt by the same God that I was indwelt by, Oh man, it was one of the sweetest and most beautiful things on the face of the earth. And shortly after getting saved, I became a part of this amazing Bible study that uh, that was full of young people that were getting saved. God was doing somewhat of a revival in our area. And, and over time, that Bible study grew to over 200 people in a backyard and, and God doing tremendous things. And that eventually became the church that I was a part of co-planting and, and pastoring at. But I remember in the midst of all that, as a young man, I, I went to Lebanon for a a little trip. And I remember before I left, I I said to some of my friends, I said, you know, I really have this sense, like, I'm not going to come back. I don't know what it is, but I I just sense like the Lord may have me stay in Lebanon for some reason. And so uh, when we arrived in Lebanon, this was back in 1993, uh, and I was just before I turned 18. I was about to turn 18. And I remember they looked at my passport, because I wasn't a U.S. citizen yet. Uh, My parents would Came to the US in 1980. I was four and a half. And so I, they hadn't become citizens, so I hadn't. So when they looked at my Lebanese passport and they saw when I was born, the agent looked at my parents and said, We're sorry, but your son will not be able to go back to the United States. He'll have to stay and do military service for a year and a half. I mean, you can imagine my poor mom. Like, she almost passed out right there on the floor. Uh, can you imagine me, right, fighting the Lebanese military? La, 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 la. Jesus will save you, you know? Like, <laughs> Turn to Jesus, you know, <laughs> but but I thought to myself, there it is. I mean, I told everyone I didn't think I was coming back. Obviously, I'm not coming back, right? I'll, I'll ramble for Jesus, I guess, you know. But by God's grace, my cousins fiancé happened to work for the Department of Defense and he was able to expedite things. I was exempt because I was a student here, I was already registered for university, I just hadn't started, but you know, it could drag out forever, but he was able to expedite it. But I remember when I got back to the US, it was so sweet to be back and uh the next day after returning there was a baptism that our church was doing at the beach and so one of my best friends picked me up and we were on our way to the beach when he began to tell me something that ruined the, the sweet spirit of the, the day of being back here in the U.S. And, and that was when he told me that two of my closest friends had walked away from the Lord and had gone back into the ways of the world. And I remember sitting there in the back of the car in utter disbelief I mean, you have to understand that, that, that these two guys and I were, were close beyond description. We, we, we were snatched out of the foolishness of the world. I remember with one of them in particular, we were driving back home from school one day, and we were so overwhelmed by 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 the greatness and goodness of God, as we were talking about how God saved us, we both broke down into tears. It was so overwhelming; I had to pull over into a parking lot on our way home because we were so touched and moved. These these were my my fellow partners in righteousness. These were the guys that, that I would worship the Lord with and fellowship with into the wee hours of the night. We would sit and. Talk about. Imagine if someone pulled up with a truck full of cash up to the ceiling and they offered that to us if we just denied Jesus. And ah, we would just roll and break out into laughter at the thought of that. And now I heard they had gone back to the filth and the muck and the mire of the world, indulging in sexual immorality and drug use. And I became completely undone. And I had to ask myself, what. What is the cause of this sort of thing? Why does this happen? I want you to listen to this account. You've heard of Billy Graham, but what about Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford? Have you heard of them? Billy Graham wasn't the only young preacher packing auditoriums in 1945. Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford were accomplishing the same thing and more. All three men were in their mid-20s. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach one evening to an audience of thousands, called him the most gifted and talented man in America today for preaching. Templeton and Graham were friends, both ministered for Youth for Christ, both were extraordinary preachers, yet in those early days, most observers would probably have put their money on Templeton. As a matter of fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on men who were best used of God in that organization's five-year existence. The article highlights the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was never mentioned. Braun Clifford was yet another gifted 25-year-old fireball. In 1945, many believed Clifford, the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen for centuries. In that same year, Clifford preached to an auditorium of thousands in Miami, Florida. People lined up 10 and 12 deep outside the auditorium trying to get in. Later that same year, when Clifford was preaching in the chapel at Baylor University, the president ordered class bells turned off so that the young man could minister without interruption to the student body. For two hours and 15 minutes, he kept those students on the edge of their seats as he preached on the subject, Christ and the Philosopher's Stone. At the age of 25, young Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more records than any other clergyman his age in American history. National leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, and eloquent. Hollywood invited him to audition for the part of Marsilius in the robe. It seemed he had everything. Graham, Templeton, and Clifford. In 1945, all three came shooting out of the starting block like rockets. You've heard of Billy Graham. So how come you've never heard of Chuck Templeton or Braun Clifford? Especially when they came out of the shoots so strong in '45. Just five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator and newspaper columnist. Templeton had decided he was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the term. By 1950, this future Babe Ruth wasn't even in the game and no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. What about Clifford? By 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life alcohol, and financial irresponsibility had done him in, he wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children. At just 35 years of age, this once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a run-down hotel off the edge of Amarillo. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. He died unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Tragic isn't it? And as you heard me read that, I'm sure as my heart did when I first read it, your heart broke at the thought and the concept of someone who appeared to have been so on fire for Christ, so committed to Christ, so devoted to Christ, no longer even claiming his name. And brothers and sisters, I've seen this time and time again over the course of my nearly 31 year walk with the Lord. I've seen people in my own church who you would have said are the greatest and most passionate believers on the face of the earth. I remember one guy in particular, he was so Passionate about the Lord. He would go on the streets and find people, bring them into his own home. This guy had devoted his life to the study of scripture. He, he majored in, in, in theological studies in school. And yet I remember sitting across from him one day in a restaurant and, and he, he would throw out the name of, of God by saying Yahweh in a, such a, a disdaining way. And I sat there and I thought, oh Lord, why? How? And we know that in, in many cases, it's because some of these people are false converts. Scripture is clear that someone can profess to know Christ, but not know him, Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. First John says, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. By this, we know we've come to know him. It goes on to say, if we keep his commandments, the one who says I've come to know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus said in Matthew seven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name? And he says, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. That is a terrifying thing. Now there are times when believers find themselves in that place where they're wrestling and struggling. Scripture says, make your call and election sure, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, but it's usually, as I was sharing with someone even earlier today, it's those who are oftentimes justifying themselves in their sin that are typically false converts. Those that know the Lord will often be broken and contrite over their sin, wondering, am I really saved, Lord, because they truly desire to honor and please the Lord. Sometimes it's an issue of false conversion, but I think sometimes in the case of genuine believers who find themselves in places that they would have at one point thought unthinkable, I think what happens is we find ourselves drifting into this area of idolatry. And when we do that, we end up shaking the foundations of our lives. We end up turning from the convictions that at one time drove us in our obedience to the Lord and in our love for him. And I want us to take a look at a prominent figure in God's word who seemed to start off with a bang but who bombed big time in the end. I want us to take a look look at the life of King Solomon. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter three. 1 Kings chapter three, beginning in verse five. 1 Kings three, five to 15. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. The speech pleased the Lord That Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, indeed, it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all His servants. I mean, the only response I can have after reading an account like this, which I've read many times, and I'm sure you have as well, the only proper response to seeing the way that King Solomon responded to the God of the universe is to say, wow, because we're not talking here about some mythological genie that popped out of a bottle, as I referenced in my other message. We're not talking about maybe some earthly potentate who had many resources and much power, though, of course, they'd be limited by the very virtue of the fact that he's man in nature. We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence, appearing to a man and saying to him, what do you want? Anything you want, you ask and I will give it to you. And you think of all the things that Solomon could have asked for. Right? I mean, every time I see those genie scenarios, of course, the first thought that pops into my mind is to ask for an infinite amount of wishes. (laughs) Right? But Solomon could have asked for so many different things. He could have taken from God's hand, whatever God would have willingly given to him by virtue of the fact that he told him to ask. But of all the things Solomon could have asked for, he asked God to give him a heart of wisdom so that he can know between good and evil, so that he can discern how he could lead God's people. That's what you call altruism in its truest sense. And this touched the heart of God in the way that we would understand emotion and God's heart being touched. And God said to him, because you did not ask for the things that most people would have asked for, for the things that maybe you could have legitimately asked for, because you have asked for this honorable thing to be able to lead my people. A true demonstration of genuine agape love, if you would. Because you've asked that, Solomon, not only am I going to give you the things that you didn't ask for, but I'm going to make you the wisest man in the world. There won't be anyone like you, before or after, in the wisdom that I'm about to give you. And then we turn to 1 Kings 3 verses, um, sorry, 1 Kings 3 verses 5 through 15. Oh, that's what we just read. Verse 3 of, uh, of 1 Kings that I didn't read, and I want you to listen to this. Solomon made a great treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places, because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Listen, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except, except that he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. When we read Solomon's account, we would step back and say, wow, I mean, Solomon, God appeared to you, God granted you whatever you wanted. You are the heir of the throne of the great King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man who was called a man after God's own heart, not by man, but by God, which meant it was true, undeniably so. And yet, even given all of that, it tells us that Solomon, having, of course, grown up under the truth of God's word, having encountered the true and living God, it says to us that he made a simple exception in his life. That one tiny little word, except he sacrificed on the high places. And the high places were an abomination to God because the high places were associated with with pagan rituals, pagan practices, pagan sacrifices. And God did not want his people to have any association with these things. He said in Deuteronomy 12, 13 to 14, take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I command you. Now it could be that God had tolerated it like he did with divorce as an example. As Jesus said, Moses, you know, told you give a certificate of divorce. He did that though because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. We don't know exactly why God permitted it as other kings had done it as well. But nonetheless, Solomon made this exception. And he was a man, as we saw, you know, who had determined to have the right heart and the right attitude, a man that we would see as starting off as we read about those other men, doing great right out of the chute, walking in a manner that would have been honorable and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And there could have been justifications made, excuses made, but nonetheless, when God gives a command and a call, his people need to have the heart that says, Lord, I yield to you in obedience. But what kind of obedience Oftentimes we hear about obedience and I think we can immediately translate it in our mind as this sort of draconian and intense and displeasing sort of a reality. But First John says, in this is love that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Because those who know their God know and understand that when God gives a command, as I mentioned before, it's for his glory and for their good. God doesn't come to people and say, you know, uh, I don't want you to, to, to indulge in drunkenness because you're going to end up one day drinking and driving. You're going to end up killing a family of five. You're going to end up ruining your life as you spend most of it in prison. You know, that's too good for you, so don't do it. He doesn't come and say, you know, I don't want you to indulge in sexual immorality because, you know, then you're going to end up having, you know, a baby out of wedlock and and affecting that child's life, your life, the partner's life. You're going to end up maybe getting all kinds of venereal diseases. You're going to end up wounding yourself in ways you can't explain. You know what? That's too much fun, so don't do it. No, God looks at us as our designer. As the one who fashioned and formed us and made us and gave us life, and he says, I want to spare you from harm. I want to spare you from destruction because anything you do that is not in keeping with my design is in reality something that's unnatural. And the, un-na- and the end result of unnatural things is always disaster. Just try eating through your ears or drinking through your eyeballs. You'll realize real quickly that that, that doesn't work. Try driving down the road, sitting on your lawnmower, or try mowing your lawn with your car. You'll realize quickly... That those things won't bode well. Well, Solomon ended up building the temple that David wanted to build but couldn't build. And it tells us here, after dedicating it, what it was that King Solomon said in 1 Kings 8:54 to 61. Kings 8, 54 to 61. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that the, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood up and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord, our God be with us as he was with our fathers, may he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline, we may incline our hearts. He may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require that all peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Powerful prayer. Filled with powerful instruction to God's people. Filled with great intentions. God Blessing his people as they obey him and lift for him and keep his commandments. Now, God tells Solomon that he heard his prayer. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the people, And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So God responds to Solomon after this beautiful and eloquent truth-filled and God-oriented prayer. And he praises him in that regard. He says, I've heard your prayer and and I intend to bless. Yet Solomon, he warns, if you forsake me, if you stray from my ways, there will be repercussions and consequences for that. And we see that Solomon, again, had in many ways walked in obedience to the Lord. And it shows us how blessed he was, 1 Kings 10. 23 to 24. It says So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. Solomon was radically blessed. His wisdom had reverberated throughout the earth. He was sought out by others. You guys remember Candace, right? The queen of the Ethiopians came and she was in awe. There was no more more breath left in her as it were because she was so astounded by the great blessings that abounded in Solomon's life. But you have to remember that small exception that was there. That small exception that ended up growing into something that was far beyond the small. First Kings 11, beginning in verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the lord his god as was the heart of his father david for solomon went after ashereth the goddess of the sidonians and after milcom the abomination of the ammonites solomon did evil in the sight of the lord and did not fully follow the lord as did his father david then solomon built a high place for chemosh and an abomination of moab on the hill that is east of jerusalem And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded." Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Brothers and sisters, it's hard to imagine that we are reading about the same man. Remember, this is Solomon The one who, when God asked him, what do you want, didn't ask for anything selfish or self-serving, but asked God for the thing that pleased his heart, that he might be able to lead his people in wisdom. This is the guy who, who... made the determination to lead God's people in a way that is pleasing and honoring to him. But we saw what it says in verse 1, in keeping with what we saw initially when we first started in our text, there was an exception. But Solomon loved many foreign women. And he clung to them in love. It started with the small. It started with the exception of, well, I'm not going to you know, do as God says, it's okay. You know, the high places, they're kind of in vogue. They're accepted by the nations that surround us. This is what people do. This is what the people want us to do. We have the right heart to do it toward God. And so we see that that little exception turned into something bigger. And brothers and sisters, this is what happens when we make exceptions in our lives when it comes to our walk with the Lord. You have to remember that Satan, he masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't come to us and and put something in front of us oftentimes that is completely obvious. He'll often take something legitimate and he'll tie it with something that is fully sinful. And when we see that, we begin to sort of justify it. We begin to look at those that are around us. We begin to see what those maybe that we even respect and follow are doing. And little by little, we begin to sort of follow what others are doing. And my question to you is, who is your walk with? Is it with God or with people? I can't count how many times there have been people that have gone away, whether it was to the military or, or for a job in another place, and they weren't around other believers. And, and then they end up going headlong into sin. And, and they'll say, well, I don't have other believers around me. I, I just can't do it. But listen, people who need people to walk with God don't walk with God. They walk with people. Now, of course, we're called to have the body of Christ, so we need our brothers and sisters in the sense that we need accountability, we need fellowship, and we're called to exist in community. But what I'm saying is, in the times when that isn't available, do we cease to fear God and walk with God and live for the Lord? Of course not, not if we, if we, we truly love the Lord, but, but that's what begins happening, right? We, we build our convictions, and we, we build our doctrine, and we, we build our behavior in life on other people. And then when other people that we respect shift, then we shift with them. And that is not a walk with God. A person who walks uprightly with the Lord says, Lord, though none may go, still I will follow. The heart's cry is, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I serve you. And I don't bow my knee to man, I bow my knee to you. But those small exceptions come in and then they begin to build. And then we find ourselves in a place that is both dangerous and destructive. I want you to listen to what J.C. Ryle said. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full grown tree. A child can wade over the Thames River at its fountainhead, but the largest ship in the world can float in it when it gets near the sea. So it is with habits. The older, the stronger. The longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. They grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength, Custom is the nurse of sin. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. We've all seen that. We've all seen the hardness of heart that oftentimes will accompany those that live long in sin. And in the natural, like he talked here about the sapling, as you see it grow, it is... Pliable. You'll often see trees that are newly planted with those poles on either side, right? Directing them to go up straight. But you don't ever see that with an oak tree that's 50 years old. Because now it is formed. It's shaped. It's it's impossible really to to bend it and move it. And every analogy breaks down somewhere and God's grace, of course, we can always grow and change, but we understand the difficulty that's associated with that. But I hope that as you heard me read that, quote by J.C. Ryle that, that something in your heart sort of triggered to where you feel some sense of sobriety to say, Lord. If someone like Solomon, who started out so well, who had so much right intentions, who was favored by you, blessed by you in such extraordinary ways, if someone like Solomon, the King David's son, Uh, who, who was the wisest man on earth could have strayed like that. Lord, help me to be careful about the exceptions that I make in my own life because it's deceptive. It starts small and then it grows and it gets bigger and bigger and it takes a hold of us and begins to lead us in the most destructive directions. So what are the exceptions in our lives? that have become our idols. We want to explore some of those together and we want to recognize that it's important for us to know that idolatry is uh, extremely, extremely deceptive. And the place where we can more often than not examine who we are and where we stand is what we do in private. One of the things my kids hear me say time and time again is this, who we are in private, when we are most comfortable, least self-conscious, and there's no one to impress, that is who we are. Let me say it again. Who we are in private, when we're most comfortable, least self-conscious, and there's no one to impress, that is who we are. And that's revealing. And it's convicting. There's a famous preacher that says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) And this is an ouch kind of a concept, right? Because when I step back and I say, okay, when no one's around, when people aren't watching me, when I'm not trying to impress anyone, when I I have nothing to gain from those that are around me, when it's my family, my wife and my kids, those that have accepted me, rather those that are stuck with me, (laughs) whether they like it or not when they see me speak, when they watch me do this, that, or the other, or when I'm alone, when there's no one around, when I'm out of town and I'm in a hotel room, when I'm, when I'm in a city where nobody knows me, when I'm in a dark room with the door closed, who am I then? What do I do then? That is who I really am. Not often when we're performing for people or seeking something from them. That is who we are in reality. And what I want to do in, in our remaining time is I want to... Examine some of the exceptions, maybe, that we make in life or the places where idolatry can exist. But first, I want to recap what idols are and what idolatry is. John Piper said this: He said, Idolatry starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness, a disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God, and only for the sake of God. But covetousness is the condition that this disordered heart is into, an act of loving too much, what ought to be loved less. And that is why the wrath of God is coming. That is what idolatry looks like today, and it is everywhere in our culture. Wow, that's heavy right? Loving anything more than God, anything more than God, right? I mean, when Jesus talked about hating your father and mother and and brother and sister, and, and he gave that whole list, what's he talking about? He's talking about our love for God being so great that in comparison to that, our love for those that we would love most would appear as if though it were hate, right? In comparison to our love for him. But idolatry, Elevates other things above an affection toward the Lord, and those things become idols. He goes on to say, So finally, what is an idol? It is a thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport. Anything that you elevate above the Lord and give your all to more than the Lord ends up becoming your idol. And there are some things I think that we automatically know can be idolatry. Maybe some of them have already popped into your mind as you've heard me speak, things like television or for maybe you younger people, unfortunately now for older people, video games, uh, money, clothing, cars, food, etc. But I don't wanna focus on the obvious so much. I wanna touch on a few of, the less obvious for us, things that I would call respectable idols. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins, and I think it was brilliant because there are those things, I think, in our lives that we would look at and say, well, this isn't really on that level. It's not really that big of a deal. But in the sight of the Lord, they are. Like to Solomon, it may not have seemed a big deal to sacrifice on the high places, but it was in the sight of the Lord. Remember, we know that something is an idol when we're willing to sin against God in order to go after it, to have it, or to engage in it. Let me say that again. We know something is an idol when we're willing to sin against God in order to go after it, to have it, or to engage in it. So the first idol I want to examine is the idol of worship. The idol of worship. Now, I know that that one may sound a bit peculiar and maybe bizarre to you, but what, what do I mean by the idol of worship? You know, worship is such a part of our lives as Christians when it comes to song. We come together every Sunday at times during the week and we lift our voices and we sing to the Lord, and it's, it's such a, a wonderful thing. But sometimes what we don't recognize is that our lives don't match the words that we're singing. When we come before the Lord and we worship and and we say, I surrender all, do we really mean that? When we sing songs to the Lord and acknowledge that he is our everything, right? Jesus, you're all that I need. Do we really mean that? Do we live that out? When we talk about, you know, having clean hands and a pure heart before the Lord, is that truly the pursuit of our lives? I have seen massive disconnect in people's lives. I've seen it in my own life at times. I remember one time Benny Hinn graced our city, if I can use that word. He came to do a, a big crusade and an event. And so some friends of mine and I thought, you know what, we need to go and, 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 check out what he's doing, right? He's in our city and, and we want to kind of know what he's up to. Never had been to one of his events. We knew, you know, he, he had preached heresy and that concerned us. And so we went and I remember during, during the, the worship time, there was a lady that was sitting in front of us who was like really, really into it. I mean, you know, some people are into worship and other people are like really into worship. And this lady was like swaying and oh, and just like, you know, shaking her head and and right next to her was her little boy, and he started to, like, you know, tug on her and, and kind of poke at her. Now, I, I, I would say that this little boy had some, you know, he had some issues. He, you know, he, he was a very incorrigible little boy, and he kept on, and right in the midst of, of singing, she just, without skipping a beat, ah, stop it, ah, <laughs> 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 and just transition back and forth three or four times. And I'm like, Man what a disconnect. And it just gave me this sort of mental image in my mind of what it is we do when it comes to this issue of worship. Like when worship is something that we engage in every time we gather with God's people or when we're alone and we're singing out to the Lord and and lifting up our hands to him, and yet we find our lives not connecting with the essence of worship, which is what? Total and complete abandonment of ourselves. Total surrender to the Lord on every front. And that's an idol. There's the idol of image. What people think of us. This is a huge one. This is the one that I think is one of the most prevalent in our lives as believers, where we're living not for the Lord, but for man. You know, there's a quote by, I believe it was uh, Leonard Ravenhill who said, Lord, help me to be a fisher of men and not a fisher of compliments from men. It's a big danger that preachers fall into. They preach so that men can praise them. They're involved in ministry so that people can fulfill the needs that they feel that they have for significance and accomplishment and spirituality. People get married for those sorts of of reasons too, trying to seek from, from, from their wife things that only the Lord is the one that, that should be the main source of supply for. People do that with work. They do that with uh, friendships. They do that with all sorts of things in life, the Lord needs to be the main source. And when we stray from that, we begin to live for man and do things for our own pleasure and connection with the pleasure of man. Because you know as well as I know, there is this indescribable, intangible pleasure we feel when other people are happy with us. That's the idolatry of image. The lengths that people will go to to maintain that image, the lies that they will tell, the convictions that they will violate, the commands of God that they will break. Image is terrible. There are times when it leads us to silence where we have friends that are living in sin, but because we're afraid of what they're going to think of us, oh, they'll think I'm a legalist. They'll think I'm holier than thou. They'll think I'm self-righteous. Whereas we know they're in dangerous sin. We see that in their lives. We have a voice in their lives, but we won't say anything because we're afraid of what they'll think of us or how they'll make us feel if they're negative toward us in their response. We won't share the gospel with some people because we're afraid of what they think of us. Ray oftentimes gives a challenge. He'll say, look, imagine you were given $10,000 for every person you witness to. How would that change your evangelism life? Right? He says that alarm clock that you hate and want to destroy goes off at four in the morning. Oh, I love you. Let's go. Let's make some money. Right? I mean, you're knocking on people's doors, pulling them out of bed. Listen, sinner, no problem there. And then he gives the kicker, are we willing to do for the love of money what we're not willing to do for the love of God? Whoo, that's a big ouch, right? But seriously, if every one of us knew, of $10,000, every person we witness to, I guarantee you we would be doing some major witnessing. But we won't share the gospel with people because we're more afraid of what they think of us than, than, than we are concerned about where they're going to spend eternity. We find ourselves pulling back on things like hospitality because we're concerned about what people are gonna think about our home. It's not nice enough or it's too nice. They're gonna think, you know, I'm, I'm materialistic. They're gonna think, you know, oh, I'm, I'm impoverished and, and, you know, or my house is dirty. Or my, and, and, and so we forego practicing biblical hospitality because we're afraid of our image. That's an idol. Think about that. We forego loving people and bringing them into our house and and, and ex- exemplifying the, the sweetness of the gospel, right? In that, because we're afraid of what they'll think about us. It's great to clean our home and to, to get it in a place where people feel comfortable in it, but that's not what it's about. If it's between that or having some friends, hey, come on over, yeah, the house isn't that clean, but whatever— you know, and we spend more time, right, at making people feel bad. Oh, I'm sorry, my house is a mess, and this and this and that, than, than we do just blessing them. How about just come on over? Hey, don't even say a word about it. We're so glad you're here and you feed them and take care of them and bless them. Mm-hmm. There's times when we won't open up because we don't want to sound stupid. We don't want to seem sinful because we're concerned about what people think. There's sometimes where ladies you, you won't honor God's word in the area of modesty because you want to fit in with the culture. You don't want to be seen as frumpy or, or you know, out of style. And so you'll violate God's word, which calls you to, to dress modestly and, and to honor and love other people by guarding, guarding them in that regard. And all of that is, is dangerous and destructive, the, the idol of image, Pride and stubbornness. Pride and stubbornness. Those are two different things. Pride is the element that won't back down at admitting that it's wrong. It won't apologize to people. It won't seek counsel. It won't repent. It won't receive from certain people. And pride is such a stench in the nostrils of God. It's, it's, it's pathetic and it makes The people who want to uphold it look pathetic. I I don't know if you've ever encountered someone and you're like having a discussion with them and they say something. You say, no, that's actually not right. And they just will hold to it no matter what. Yeah, planet Earth is the biggest planet in the universe. Uh, Actually, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And then you pull out your phone. You show them it's not. Well, no, I think that's wrong, right? And we persist. That is the essence of pride. It's unwilling to relent, to pull back to, because it wants to what? It wants to hold to its own way. Stubbornness, though, is persisting in that pride. Not giving up, not not willing to yield at all. And so those two together are destructive. There's the idol of comfort and ease. That's a big one in America. Uh, We are blessed beyond description. Anytime I go to other third world countries, I come back in a mode of like hyper repentance, Lord, I'll never complain again. Right. I mean, I'm going to some places that give me this like white paste stuff. And I'm like, what is this? Right. And, 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 and I, I'm finding myself complaining at home about something that's, that's wonderful and delicious. And you start realizing, wow, Lord, what's wrong with my heart, comfort and ease. We here in America do what I call, we complain about the inconveniences in our luxuries. My air conditioning isn't working well. Air conditioning? Go to some countries around the world. What is that, right? is the typical response. We complain about, you know, our, our automobiles that uh, aren't as nice as we'd like them to be. We complain about our refrigerators not being cold enough or or our water not having enough pressure and things of that sort. You go to some of these countries where they're walking miles to pump water out of a dirty well, boiling the water so they don't die of dysentery. We complain about the inconveniences in our luxuries. And so we won't serve the Lord. We won't serve others because we want that life of comfort and ease. We won't give ourselves over to God's word and to prayer and to spiritual discipline. We won't give ourselves over to the hard work of study, which is often taxing and draining. And we find ourselves unwilling to give ourselves over to reach the world. You know, you think of those that go to other parts of the world and give up their lives of comfort and ease here in America for the sake of Christ and the lost. That blows my mind. Those are my heroes in the world. You know, when I think about my heroes in the world, uh, I, I think about those who will adopt children who have special needs. I know a family who, Adopted, I think five or six children, all of them with special needs—blind and crippled, and and Down syndrome. They did that willingly. They went out and willingly did that. You know, we talk about the empty nest life, right? That will never be a possibility for them. This is love. I, I think of those that 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 will marry someone who has a massive disability. Think of Johnny Erickson Tada's husband. He, he knew his, his wife is confined to a wheelchair. She's a quadriplegic. He married her knowing he would spend a life of service toward her. Think of Nick Vujicic's wife, if you know of him. No arms and no legs. Where's the protection? Where's the, where's the security there? No. That, that is amazing. And then those who go to the hardest places on earth, Afghanistan and Iraq and, and North Korea, to serve the Lord in missions. That is a life that says, man... I'm the Lord's. And look, you're not called to that. I'm, I know the majority of you in here, but where is your heart in that regard? Lord, if you call me, I will go wherever, whenever, however. I'm yours, Lord. If we're not willing to do that, if we don't have that heart, that is the idolatry of comfort and ease. Bitterness. The idolatry of bitterness. You know, bitterness is like a drug. And it's self-destructive. I've heard it said that bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. But bitterness can easily take a hold of us. And and it's a weird thing because we know it's harmful and destructive. We don't like the feeling it gives us. But in another way, like drugs, we're kind of addicted to it. And and, and it, it becomes the thing that sets the rhythm to our lives. Where do we stand in that regard? I remember years ago, being in Lebanon and looking through a photo album and I saw a family member of mine that I remembered was treated horribly by another family member. When that was happening, I was young and I didn't really understand it. But as I looked at that picture, I don't know what it was, but something in me triggered and all the things that I had remembered hearing about them when I was a child suddenly just came back to heart and mind and I was absolutely devastated. I felt this sense of rage and anger rise up inside of me. And I felt if they were present, I had the ability to, to, to tear them to pieces with my bare hands. And then all of a sudden, as quickly as that hit me, that's how quickly it left when I saw Christ in my mind's eye hanging upon that cross, bearing the sins of man and saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And all of a sudden, all my sin against God flashed before my eyes and I remembered how so freely he forgave me. And as quickly as that hit me, that's how quickly it left. Brothers and sisters, God wants to set you free of that. It is a terrible and destructive idol. It's that small exception. Yeah, but this is different. You don't know what they did to me and how bad it was. Listen, consequences and forgiveness are two different things. There are consequences at times when people do things. Someone comes in my house and makes a pass at my wife. They're never coming into my house again, but I'm still commanded by God's love and grace to, to forgive them and to treat them in accordance with 1 Corinthians agape love. Someone murders one of my children, well, they're going to go to prison and I will testify against them, but I'm still called to love my enemies. God is able to do that in you. Corey Temboom, imagine her and her sister in that concentration camp. They were starved. They were were brutally beaten and and treated horribly. And, And you think of Betsy dying, and she looks at Corey and she says, Corey, you must go out and tell people of the love of God that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Wow. So, brothers and sisters, these are the idols that I think at times we allow to be the exceptions in our lives and then end up dominating us and overtaking us. There's covetousness. There's friendships and relationships where we're willing to, to befriend the world. Or we're willing to, to marry someone who's an unbeliever even uh, because we're in a place where we want what we want rather than what the Lord wants. And it over, ends up overtaking our lives and destroying us in more ways than we realize. Sinning against God by pursuing anything before him, willing to sin in order to do it. It's destructive, my brothers and my sisters, and I want to urge you today to determine, to change that if you see these things in your life. What is the real result of people idolatry? Edward Welch said, As in all idolatry, the idol we choose to worship soon owns us. The object we fear overcomes us. Although insignificant in itself, the idol becomes huge and rules us. It tells us how to think, what to feel, and how to act. It tells us what to wear. It tells us to laugh at the dirty joke. It tells us to be frightened to death that we might have to go up in front of a group and say something. The whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our desires leaves us enslaved to them. And that is the tone and tenor of it all. And you think of what ended up happening with Solomon at the end of his life. Ecclesiastes tells us that he recognized everything was vanity. He came to his senses, it seems. He recognized that this whole world was empty and nothing without God. And I'll leave you with these final words from Spurgeon. Think not that God is blind. He can perceive the idols in your hearts. He understands what be the secret things that your soul lusts after. He searches your heart. He tries your reins. Beware lest he find you sacrificing to strange gods. For his anger will smoke against you and his jealousy will be stirred. O you that worship not God, the God of Israel, who give him not dominion over your whole soul and live not to his honor. Repent of your idolatry. Seek mercy through the blood of Jesus and provoke not the Lord to jealousy anymore. If you don't know the Lord, again, and in, in here today, recognize that your idolatry will be your undoing. But if you know him, then you have his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness available to you. What are the exceptions in your life? Let the Lord tear those down today and set you free to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you again for your powerful word, for its life-changing ramifications. Help us to obey it, to take heed to it, and to be transformed by it. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.